Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth, and a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire, and among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, and you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. Thank you, Kim. I love that. Just so you know, I love that we take some time, very intentional time in the service to stand and read the Bible. It's the living word of God. It's a big deal. So thank you for doing that for us. Um, we are talking about the power of our words today. This is where we find ourselves in this series through James and, and in the Bible today. But since we've been teaching through this series for almost two months, we got uh this week and four more weeks, I think it is. But since we've been doing this for almost two months now, let me just take a moment and recap what we've covered so far, because obviously I don't uh, expect that you've been here all the weeks. We, we know that James was the little brother of Jesus. Uh, he, was not, he didn't become a Christian until after Jesus uh, was resurrected, which is a, a cool little facet in the story. He became a pastor uh, of, the, of the church in Jerusalem, and he wrote this letter to some very uh, some of the very first and earliest Christians not long after the life of Jesus. So this was one of the kind of first documents written to Christians. And the purpose was to provide practical instruction. This is not a real theology, heavy doctrine book. Um, this is a letter about how to live the Christian life. What does it look like in real life? How does faith work? What does it look like to be a Christian? And so this letter is James holding up really 11 different ways and, and parts of life where our faith in Jesus should distinguish us from people whose faith is not in Jesus. But what's interesting is that James doesn't make his point with guilt and shame. He doesn't make his point by saying, you know, this is what you need to do if you're going to be a Christian. If you're not, you should feel awful or anything like that. Maybe how a lot of us are familiar with religion. Instead, what he does is he describes how beautiful it is and how powerful it is and how amazing it is when our faith begins to express itself and show itself in real life. And so instead of making you feel guilty or bad for not doing something, he just shows us what it looks like when we are doing something, when our faith really is showing itself and gives us the opportunity to, to ask ourselves, do I have that? Is that what my life looks like? Um, which is always a better way to do it. And we said it this way last week. We, we asked the question, do I possess what I confess? That's kind of a memorable way that we talked about it. 
And this is what James is getting at, is do we possess what we confess? Because it's easy to say you're a Christian or say you believe. It's not my job to say whether that's true or not or, or anybody else's job, but it is your job to kind of uh, ask the Holy Spirit to help you and to search you and to assess your life and to figure out if you possess the qualities that you say or that you confess to believe in. Is what you say you believe tr is true and the life that you live, is there what Eugene Peterson calls congruence? Are they, are they lined up? And so, so far, James has described what people of faith look like when they face trials or trouble. He would say that there's a difference between the way a believer faces trouble in life than someone who's not a believer. How we treat the poor and how we treat the rich, that our faith in Jesus should affect the way that we treat poor people and treat rich people. Uh, how, we, how we shouldn't or how we discriminate or have prejudice, that a believer, a person with faith in Jesus shouldn't have uh, prejudice or discriminate. That we should be people of action. He calls them doers of the word. This is what he's, he's taught us so far. And today, James focuses solely on the effect our faith has on the words that we speak. That people who have a true faith in Jesus should speak differently than people who don't. Let me say that again. That people who have a faith in Jesus should speak differently than people who, who don't. I grew up in um, an amazing home and uh, heritage, spiritual, religious heritage. A lot of you know that story. And, and I, I think my parents and my grandparents probably did it the way that I do it with my kids. I don't know. I'd have to really think about it. But the emphasis was on not saying certain words. Uh, my grandfather, this is old, my grandmother, this is old school, but she would actually wash your mouth out with soap. Anybody have a grandmother that would wash your mouth out with soap? Yeah, I think you'd lose your kids now for doing that. But I... She would do that, but it was based on not saying certain words. And so it was possible, hopefully not, people didn't do this, but it was possible to not curse, like say curse words, but still be nasty with your mouth. Maybe you're familiar with this idea that you, there were certain things that you couldn't say or were off limits, but even though those words weren't coming out of your mouth, there were still other words coming out of your mouth that, that were not life-giving. They were not positive. They were not affirming. They were very ne negative. They were very critical. They were very angry. They were very bitter. And that's not what James is talking about. James is not going to give us a list today and say, you know, you can say dang it, but you can't say, you know, the other one. You know, you can say shoot, but you can't say the other one. He's not talking about this, like, vocabulary cursing thing, which, you know, it's good advice. I you know, encourage you not to do that. But that's not the point he's trying to make today. The point that he's trying to make today is that a controlled tongue reveals a changed heart. A controlled tongue reveals a changed heart, which means the opposite is also true, that an uncontrolled tongue is an indictment on an unchanged heart. And that the mouth that you had before you put your faith in Jesus should be different after your faith is placed in Jesus Christ that the changed heart that's happened inside of you should in some way control your tongue. Now, there are a couple of challenges that we're going to face as we go through this today. And one of the big challenges is that this topic of words is, is an area that everyone admits some small degree of fault, 
but no one truly believes that it's that bad, that, that, that the words that leave our mouth are evil. That's a little too strong, we would think. Yes, we vent to our spouse, or we get mad in traffic and say a few curse words, maybe, or we could all be a little more positive and a little less negative. We would admit that, but we wouldn't say that our tongues spew flames of fire. That's a little extreme. That's a little, a little much. But it's not. It's not. Because here's what I know to be true, is that if we were to, to take time today, and I was to pass around the microphone and you had to be honest, here's what I know would be true, is that you would be able to tell me, going back 40, 50, 60 years, some of you, you would be able to tell me about a careless word or statement or phrase or sentence or conversation that someone had with you that was a small spark that lit your life on fire. Ruined your life, affected your life in ways that you never imagined that it would. That the words that they said shaped your life, sometimes for better, but a lot of times for worse. Someone said something negative or critical or hurtful, and those words were lodged in your brain. And you can't remember, you know, where you put your keys, and you can't remember, like, a lot of the things about your childhood, but you can remember hurtful, negative, embarrassing words that were said. I was in sixth grade. I had a teacher named Miss Ovington. <laughs> Miss Ovington. Uh, and uh, Miss Ovington, she hated me. Like, honestly, she did. And the and feeling was mutual. I couldn't stand her. She couldn't stand me. I will admit that I was a handful, and I'm paying for that now with a few of my kids. But um, I, uh, I was a smart aleck, and she was a mean lady. And uh, so we bumped heads all the time. I came into class one day, and, and she said, I've locked my keys in my desk drawer. Could anyone, anyone think they could help me get the, like, pop the drawer open, get the drawer open, and, and get the keys out? And I was like, I can. Like, I believed I could do anything. And uh, I was like, sure, I'll do it. If I, that means I don't have to do work, I'll, I'll come work on that. And, uh, and so for 30 minutes or so, like, most of the class, I got rulers, and I'm trying to, like, pop the desk drawer open and stuff, and I cannot get it. So we're almost to the end of class, and Miss Ovington says, Jason, were you able to get it? And I said, no, ma'am, I wasn't. I'm sorry. And she goes over to her purse, and she takes out her keys that has the key to the desk, and she opens it, and the whole time she had her keys. And I, I was really confused, and she said, I knew you would volunteer and think you could do it, and I just wanted you to know you're not as smart as you think you are. <laughs> I know. Embarrassed me in front of the whole class. Put me in my place. And, and, I, was, and I was preaching my sermon at the 930 service. And those memories came flooding back to me. Sixth grade, Miss Ovington. I wasn't planning on telling that story at 930. And I was like, hurtful, critical words. And I was like, Miss Ovington. Like my bride just... And I'm not saying it's her fault that I've spent the rest of my life trying to prove that I'm smart. But I am saying that I could give you lots of examples of where I felt embarrassed or ashamed or incompetent. And that stuck with me because of someone's words. And you have those stories too. Maybe it's based on appearance or lack of accomplishments. 
hopefully you have some positives as well. Hopefully there was some encouragement, some affirmation. Maybe you would say, you know what, my life was shaped and formed also by positive people. I, have also, I had other teachers that were, that were amazing and were, and were so affirming in, in so many uh, ways. But it is true that the negatives stick out with us a lot more. And if I were to ask you what's the meanest, most hurtful thing that anyone has ever said to you, I know you would not have to think very long. If I said what's the most positive, affirming thing anyone's ever said to you, you'd have to think for a little while. Like you'd come up with something. But if I said what's the meanest, most hurtful thing anyone's ever said to you, you would know within a few seconds because they affect our lives in such a dramatic, dramatic way. And so that is a challenge for us today is to really admit the gravity of what James is saying and that it's true. That this is not just something we could do a little bit better on. This is something so important, and it's so important that he says that if you could control or, 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 or harness the power of the tongue, that you could, you could be self-disciplined and have self-control in every other area of your life. That nothing harder than this, it's that substantial. And another part of that challenge for us today is that you can remember all of these hurtful things that are said to you and feel like the victim, and, and in some cases rightfully so. But you, do, you also struggle to think of the ways that your words have hurt other, hurt other people. Because the people who said things to you that hurt you, they were awful human beings, but the people that you said things to that hurt them, they were too sensitive. Right? They need to get over it. Why are, they being, why are they making such a big deal out of that? And so the people who hurt you are terrible people. You're not a terrible person. The other person's just too sensitive. So here again is another challenge for us where James is talking about the struggle of our tongue and the power of our words. And we, wanna, we don't want to accept it as powerful as he's saying it is because he said, well, it's not that big. I, I mean, yeah, they said I hurt them, but I mean, it wasn't that big a deal. They, they're, making it, they're blowing it out of proportion, Right? And so this is the task that we have before us today is to take these 12 verses from James 3 and figure out how to be honest enough with ourselves and courageous enough to confront the truth of the power and the condition and the quality of our words. Since we're talking about challenges, let me give you one more and then we'll jump right in. Here's a big challenge that I've wrestled with all week is that nowhere in these 12 verses does James give us any instruction on how to fix it which every preacher wants some points and some how-tos, right? He doesn't say, your words are powerful, and so here are the three things you need to do so that you can stop talking that way. Or here's the, here's the steps to being a more tongue. James is not going to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. He's not going to say you can think it, but don't say it out loud. He's not going to teach you how to bite your tongue. All he wants to do is to wake you up and to scare you into realizing how important and powerful and, and, and harmful your words are. It's like when you, when you go to the dentist and there's like two pictures and it's like, this is what your mouth looks like if you do meth and this is what it looks like if you take care of your teeth. Like James is saying, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to show you what your, a mouth looks like that's not taken care of. And, and he wants us to look at that picture and go, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't want to be that. So no how-tos, no steps. All James does is emphasize to us why it matters. Twelve whole verses. 
dedicated to, to the urgency of the power of our words and why it matters. And he tells us why it matters for three reasons. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you, and then we'll talk about them. James is going to tell us that our words matter, number one, because we'll be judged for our words. We'll be judged for our words. Number two, words matter because we're, we'll be directed by our words. And then three, because we'll be exposed with our words. So that's, what we're, that's where we're going to go in this, is that James wants us to know that we will be judged for our words, we'll be directed by our words, and we will be exposed with our words. So let's look at each one of those. First, he says, we'll be judged for our words. We'll be judged for our words. He, he starts out by saying, um, dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly, strictly which that's a... You know, that's, that's something serious for me, even as I was reading this this week, getting ready. James is saying that all believers, every human being will be judged for the words that they speak. But those who are supposed to be spiritually responsible for people will be judged even more severely. Which should cause us to step back and go, wait a second. I thought I was going to get credit for Jesus' life because he took credit for mine. What do you mean I'm going to be judged? I thought there was no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What do you mean I'm going to be judged? I thought it was all grace and faith and now I'm in. And you're absolutely right. That you and I, if we have put our faith in Jesus, will be accepted and loved and, for, and, and are forgiven and will spend eternity with Jesus based solely on our faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross. Not based on our works or our behavior or our good efforts or our intentions. None of those things is what affects or matters when it comes to the salvation of our soul. But the Bible also teaches us that we will stand before God forgiven saved, accepted, but also in some way held accountable for the life that we live even after our faith is in Jesus. That Jesus tells a parable about guys who are given talents, and he doesn't mean talent as in skill sets. That's just what they called money back then. But the principle of the story is that to whom much is given, much is required. And that life's not fair. You know this. And so some people start at a different place than other people. Some people have more resources than other people. Some people have different families than other people, which is why it's ridiculous for us to judge, by the way. Because when you put your faith in Jesus, there should be humility about us that when we do find ourselves feeling better than somebody else, we should be able to step back and go, they may be doing more with what they were given than what I'm doing with what I've been given. I just started way ahead of them, right? And this is called stewardship. This is called faithfulness. And Jesus talks about this, and Paul talks about this, that we will stand before God in some way and be held accountable for the life that we lived, for what we did with what we have, and the words that we speak. We're going to read this uh, in just a second. We're going to read more of it, but I'll just reference it to you right now. Matthew chapter 12, this is what Jesus said in verse 36. You don't have to go to it on the screen, guys. But he says, and I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. That's what Jesus said. So we don't know exactly how this works, but we know what we know to be true is that we will be wholly loved, forgiven, accepted, received, soul saved for eternity by God and judged and held accountable for the life that 
we lived. And this, this judging and accounting that happens over here does not void the faith and the grace and the life that Jesus Christ gives us, but it is an accountability. And we have, we have a struggle, we, can, we struggle to comprehend this because we're broken, sinful people. So we have never met anyone who is able to be a just and righteous judge and hold people accountable without in some way also bringing with it condemnation or conditional love or something like that. But the Bible teaches us very clearly that, that God is a just judge. And here's what that means. That means that when every human being stands before God, even those who hate God, have a disdain for God, never believed in God, people who have wrestled with questions about who gets in and who doesn't and is that fair and all the questions we have about God. God is a just God, which means that when every human being stands before God, whatever he rules, we will go, that's right, that's right. Even if the judgment is against us and, and, and someone being sent to hell, those people, the Bible teaches us, because God is so just and righteous that people who are condemned will not fight with God about their condemnation. They will receive it as just because they, however this judgment will happen, we will look at it and go, I can't argue with that. While at the same time, those of us who have put our faith in Christ will be loved, accepted, and forgiven and held accountable, but not held accountable in a way that makes us feel not loved, received, forgiven, saved. The only example I could give to even come close to this comparison would be parenting. That I hold my children accountable, but their behavior in no way threatens their standing as a family member. You know what I mean? If you're a parent, you understand this. Like, yes, you didn't clean your room. Yes, you talked back to your mom. Yes, you lied to me, whatever it is. And there's gonna be consequences. I'm gonna hold you accountable for that. But you were never, there was never a threat that like you were out. Like you're not my daughter anymore. You're not my son anymore. Like I'm, I'm for you. We're family. We're in this thing together. And you're also gonna be held accountable for the life that you live and what you did with what you have. So that's why when the, the 13-year-old gets in a fight with the six-year-old and the 13-year-old says, that's not fair, he started it. I say, you're 13, he's six, you're not starting at the same place. So the accountability that I use to judge you, the standard that I use to judge you is not the same standard that I use to judge him. You're right, you're right. But neither one of you are ever gonna be out. We're just using a standard to judge. And so God says, James says, and Jesus says, and Paul says, that in some way that we cannot know or comprehend, every, every word that we've spoken, it's like that first episode of Loki, if you've seen that, where they say, uh, will you verify that you've said these, all of these words? This is every word you've ever said in your life. And he looks at it and he says, are you serious? And another piece of paper prints out that says, are you serious? I don't know how it's gonna work. And it should not make you feel afraid or condemned, but it should help you to feel the gravity of the seriousness of your words? Are your words harming people? Are your words leading people away from God? Are your words making people feel more insecure, more condemned? So we're not, it's not about judgment. It's not about guilt or shame, but it could be conviction. And what we should not worry about or we shouldn't be fearful of is that somehow we're not Christians or that we haven't somehow actually put our faith in Jesus. 
Our acceptance by God should not be into question. It should be the motivation that we have. And I showed you this image last week. I want to show it to you again. We'll use this for several more weeks as we're working through these verses. But James is describing the motivation that we use to obey. The motivation that we use to do what he asks us to do. And so we recognize that our acceptance by God is not in question and not on the line. And that motivates us to want to obey what he has to say, to watch our words, to guard our, our tongue. So what I don't want you to hear me saying is, yeah, you got saved last week, but then you, but then you said that thing to that thing, that person, and you're out. What I, want, what I want you to hear me say is, you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and he's doing a deep work in you. And allow the Holy Spirit to come in. And to change the way that you speak because you want to honor God with the life that he's given you. So it's the first reason why it matters because we're going to be judged by God. Or for our words, we're going to be judged. But the second reason it matters is because our life will be directed by our words. He gives us some very vivid examples. He says like a bit in the mouth of a horse. It controls. It's like a rudder in a boat. It controls. That's how he describes the tongue that's in your body, a muscle. I had to Google it this week, make sure it was a muscle. It is a muscle, right? And, and, and that, that, is what, that is what happens in your life. It steers and directs your life. And you know this is true. Let's start with the positive first. True or not, when you fell in love with someone, and you said to them, or they said to you, I love you. That changed the direction of your life? It sure did. Or when you asked them to marry you, and they said, I do. Or when a doctor said, you're pregnant. Did those words change the direction of your life? Yeah, you went and bought a minivan, right? You weren't going to buy a minivan, but words changed what you wanted to drive, right? What about when your boss said, you're promoted, Words like someone that you love has died or words like I don't love you anymore. Did that change the direction of your life? It did. It did. Positively and negatively, it steers our life. But even more than the words that are said to us, what directs our life are the words that we say to ourselves. When we look in the mirror and we, and we say and believe things about ourselves, no one loves me. I'm ugly. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm never amount to anything. These things, my boss is a jerk. My boss is a jerk. You think that's not going to direct the way that you feel at work or how you, how you work? These words direct our lives. And I want to be really careful here. Some of you will understand what I mean. Some of you won't. And if you don't, I'm jealous. But, here, but I grew up in a very charismatic Pentecostal faith. And as a part of that charismatic Pentecostal faith, there was this idea or this tribe called word of faith. Word of faith. And what word of faith meant was that you, you name it, you claim it, you, you say it out loud, and that's an act of faith, and whatever it is that you say is what you receive in your life. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't Google it, okay? Just trust me. 
And, and, and there, how that started was some, from some small kernels of truth about believing and trusting and faith and declaring and those things. But it became very superstitious. And so you could have 102 fever, and they said, don't you say you're sick. I have 102 fever. Don't you claim that. Don't you say that. Right? Don't say your car's going to break down. Nope, there it is. Don't, don't, don't say, you know, I remember, uh, I mean, this is not funny. It's tragic. But I remember when my mom had cancer and, and the doctor said, like, she's going to die. And I remember people in my life who I didn't realize were, like, so superstitious and so word of faith and so, would say, like, don't you say that. And I'm like, look, I'm not, I'm not sentencing her to death here. Like, we're just talking medically about where she's at. And I remember kind of being confused in that process. And maybe you've had those kinds of things happen. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that your life is directed by words because there is this, like, you sent it out into the environment or the atmosphere and, you know, it came around. three. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your words directing your life because they define what you, to, what you believe about yourself. They define what you believe about other people. I do believe that if you're always saying out loud, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I do believe that you will find yourself in lots of scenarios in life where you are not where you want to be. I do believe that if you constantly say, like, I'll never find a good guy, I'll never find a good guy, I'll never find, I do believe that you're always going to be in relationships with losers, but it's not because you somehow put it out in the atmosphere. It's because it's what you believe to be true. And that's why your words direct your life. That's how they direct your life. If you're watching the news and you only ever watch news that presents it one way, and you find yourself always believing that there's a room of people somewhere, you know, conspiring to ruin your life, then everywhere you go, you will see confirmation of people trying to ruin your life. You'll see evil in people. You'll see motives in people. But it's not because you put a magic formula out there. It's because that's all you're telling yourself. That's what you believe to be true. And the words that you say, and let's modernize it a little bit, the text that you send, we could say a controlled tongue reveals a changed heart. A controlled thumb reveals a changed heart. Unless you're an index finger texter. Come on, update. Let's go double thumb. But... A controlled post, controlled comments. What I'm saying is repeated things become, they kind of solidify the beliefs and the, and the, and the, 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 the things we believe to be true about our life. It directs our life. So if there's someone in your life that you keep saying or texting or believing they're awful, they're awful, they're awful, they're awful, they're awful. That's going to direct your life and that relationship and how, you, and how you feel about that person. And it doesn't matter how much you try to psych yourself up, your words are directing and turning the ship or the horse of your life, which way to go. And James says, this is a huge deal. He said, we have, we have figured out how to, and he was writing this, you know, like 45 AD. He says, he says, um, People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. We could say, we got businessmen sending rockets into space with tourists on them. Nobody's figured out how to tame the tongue. Nobody's figured out how to tame the tongue. And it's that big a deal. So 
We're going to be directed by our words. And then lastly, he says this. He says, we'll be exposed with our words. We'll be exposed with our words. Does a spring of water bubble out of both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or grapevine or produce figs? No, no. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. In other words, what James is saying is, yes, we've all gotten good at faking it until we make it to a certain extent. The pity laugh when the joke's not funny. Like, we can do it, you know? Your friend's like, how does this look? And you're like, great, but it's not. It doesn't look great. And you know it doesn't look great, but you say it anyway. Like, okay, that's fine, okay? But there comes a point when what you believe is true and what is honest comes out of your heart into the words that you speak. That's what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Jesus said, a tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. You brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak with what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. And I tell you this, you'll give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what James is saying. You can only fake it for so long. You can only fake it for so long. Because what is in your heart will come out through your words. You ever heard the saying, there's a little truth in every joke? There's a little truth in every gif, you know. There's a little truth in every meme. There's a little truth in every, you know. And I think as believers, this is where we really have to tap into the power of confession. And here's what I mean. The difference between expression and confession. So let's say that you're experiencing a lot of hate and a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness and a lot of jealousy towards someone expressing that would look like venting. I'm just so angry. I just feel like they don't, whatever it is, you'd express it. But confessing that is totally different. Confessing it is with another believer who's, who says, and where you say, I'm feeling so much anger towards that person. I'm feeling so much bitterness towards that person. I'm feeling so much rage towards that person. And I know that person's made in the image of God. And I know that I have been loved and accepted by God, forgiven for my sins. And I don't want to hold this against them, but I'm feeling it and I'm struggling with this. Now we're confessing what's, what's happening inside of us, what's in our heart, but we're releasing it. We're letting it go and confessing it so that it could be replaced by love and grace and mercy of God. You see the difference? Venting just says like, oh, I'm so mad at that person. Oh, I hate that person. They're ridiculous. They're just stupid, whatever it is. Confession says, I'm feeling towards that person something that's not the love of Christ, something that's not the love of God. And what's bubbling out of me is this rage, but that's not who God wants me to be. And that's not how I want to see that person. They could be the same words with different intent. Different intent. Who you confess to is important. You don't want to confess to somebody who's like, I know, I hate them too. I can't even stand you want to confess to somebody who, who, who lets you communicate what's happening, but then also reminds you of your standing with God. Reminds you of what's true about you. Reminds you of what's true about them. And so James scares the bejesus out of us, the heebie-jeebies, and says that 
our words expose us. So let me give you a scary thought, all right? We're getting close to being done here. What if I sent Brad around the room and we collected everybody's cell phone? You had to give it to us. And then John O took the cable and hooked it up and we put every text you've ever sent up on the screen. You know what happened? You'd be exposed. You'd be exposed. Some of you are deleting stuff right now. You're like, oh my gosh, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. If you're not a, if you're not a phone person, like, I don't know, we recorded every phone call, whatever it is, you'd be exposed. And here's why you'd be exposed. Because it would be the first time that most of the people in this room ever found out how you honestly felt. That some of those texts would have words about people in this room that have no idea that that's actually what you think about them or how you feel about them. Have you ever gone to text someone about someone else but accidentally texted the person you were texting about? That ever happened? Oh, that's, that, that will give you some chills. You know what's happening in that moment? Exposed. Exposed. So we take all the texts that you have sent, all the gifts you've sent. It would be the most honest thing you've ever communicated. But it would ruin you in a lot of ways. Why? Because people would finally see past that presentation that you put out and see that you really are experiencing anger and jealousy and prejudice and you're vulgar and you have perversions. These things would be exposed in you. Now, the point in saying that is not that you would feel condemned or feel like a terrible person. The point is that it would cause you to recognize your need for a Savior, that you would run to the arms of Jesus and you would say, you know what? I know me. I know the real me. And I know what I text and I know what I say and I know what I think. And I would know what I would do if I knew I could get away with it. And I know what I would do if I knew I wouldn't hurt anybody. I actually know the truth about me. And I need a savior. I need a savior. If our mouth can direct our life and on our own we can't control it, which is what he said. Oh, how we need Jesus. Oh, how we need Jesus. We don't want to just learn how to bite our tongue. We want a changed heart. We don't want to just learn how to not say mean things, but think mean things. We want a faith deep enough to transform our feelings. A faith deep enough to transform our language. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, I think we search ourselves. We invite the Holy Spirit in to search ourselves. And we ask ourselves... What, how are we using our language? James gives these two depictions. He says, he says, out of your mouth, there's praising God and there's cursing. He doesn't mean cursing like, dang it. He means cursing like, like speaking evil on a person, right? So he says, out of your, out of your mouth, you, you declare how good God is. And out of that same mouth, 
you, you take your words to, to hurt and harm and, and, and on someone else. And then we're going to talk about this more next week. But in the very next verse, um, in 13, he says, uh, live an honorable life with humility that comes from wisdom. Verse 14, he says, but if you are bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. So he says, if you could say, if there is selfish ambition in your heart and bitter jealousy, then you'll cover up the truth with boasting and lying. So here's my point. If we were to assess the, what comes out of our mouth, would we say that it's m- m- a lot more praise or would we say it's more cursing, boasting, and lying? And the reason that's an important question is because it's the difference between what you believe to be true about how God feels about you and how you feel about yourself. A person who's high acceptance is praising God because they recognize who God is. They recognize Jesus as a savior. They recognize their need for a savior. But a person who does not feel loved and accepted by God has to use their words to curse, boast, and lie because they still got something to prove. They still don't believe they're loved and wholly accepted by God. I wrote it down while we were singing that first song. I love that bridge. We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free, forgiven, accepted, redeemed by his grace. Someone who truly believes that does not feel the need to correct people when they're wrong, to talk themselves up, to put other people down, because they know they were the beggar and now they're royalty. They were a prisoner, now they're running free. They are forgiven, redeemed, accepted by the grace of God. This is why Jesus could stand before his accusers, knowing they were about to kill him, with every ability to, to refute what they were accusing him of. And the, they would say, are you going to defend yourself? This is at the core of a person who believes that their soul has been saved, redeemed, accepted by Jesus Christ. A controlled tongue will only ever come from a changed heart, accepted by God. And so what if we did this? You guys have heard me share the C.S. Lewis quote often that no, no man knows how bad he is till he's tried very hard to be good. What if this week we did like a seven day challenge and we said, okay, I really want to see how bad this is. How, how, how deep does it go in me? And we said, okay, for the next seven days, I will not complain or grumble. I will not brag about myself. I will not gossip. I will not criticize anyone. I will not defend or excuse myself. And I will always affirm. You know how tired you would be by dinner tonight? We can't do this. We will never be able to do this all the way. We need the Holy Spirit to help us even to improve on this in some way. But what if even just for these next seven days, we just ask the Holy Spirit to even make us aware when we're doing it? Instead of saying, I don't want to be negative, but, and then being negative. Or saying, I don't want to complain, but, and then complaining. What if the Holy Spirit helped us to say, you know, I don't want to be negative, but I'm not going to say nothing. I don't want to complain, but I'm not going to say nothing. Or we, would, or we would allow things to run its course and to be sitting in the room at the meeting knowing that we could look smarter because that person's not smarter 
but we just let it go because we got nothing to prove because we were beggars, but now we're royalty. We're redeemed and accepted. If you think I'm smart, that'd be great. Miss Ovington, I don't know where you're at, but I'm accepted, redeemed, forgiven by Jesus Christ. I'll never be able to control my tongue until my heart is changed. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray a congregational prayer together. If you have that worship guide, grab that. After this, you're going to have an opportunity to take communion. And maybe during that communion time is just an opportunity for you to again remember and ask the Holy Spirit to help you remember you are a beggar, but now you're royalty if your faith is in Jesus so we're going to pray this prayer down at the bottom. I want you to join me where it's in bold. That, that bold part at the bottom is just us saying a, a small piece of Psalm 139. God, your word tells me to listen more than I speak, to use my words to bless and not to curse. But my words reveal the truth. I am weak and inconsistent, often driven by fear, pride, and selfishness. But your words, O oh Lord, reveal a truth too that I am your child, loved and well-pleasing to you. Forgive me for complaining about my circumstances, for cursing my enemies, for gossiping about my friends, for lying to protect myself and bragging to cover my insecurities. Instead, let my heart be so filled with your love that I can rest in silence without the need to prove myself or correct others. Will you join me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my Redeemer.